The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. This is finally the podcast from Michael Furtick. In this episode of the podcast, I'm going to read aloud The Legend of Sleepy Hollow by the American Man of Letters, Washington Irving. And I'm going to add some commentary and insight for you, as I have in the past when I've read stories aloud, because I think they help illustrate a tale that we all know from our received wisdom as people who grew up in America, many of us anyway. And we might even know it from adaptations like the movie with Johnny Depp, but few of us will have read the actual story itself. And I think we learn a lot if we read it in that way. Come to think of it, the movie with Johnny Depp also had Christina Ricci. She was huge at the time. I wonder what happened to her. Do you guys know? Uh, Maybe she's still famous. The Legend of Sleepy Hollow was first published in 1819 along with Rip Van Winkle in a collection of stories called Sketches, or more formally, the sketchbook of Geoffrey Crayon, gentlemen. Crayon being the French word, of course, um, as we have explained before in another episode. And Washington Irving was living, still a young guy, in Birmingham, England. He was there on family business and going through some pretty substantial ups and downs in his family life and family business. Eventually, it was this turbulence that led him to becoming, to become the first person to really make a living and a fortune in American history writing for a living. He was a better, more successful financially from writing than he was in business. And this was part of that journey for him. The narrator of, or the storyteller, really, the putative author of The Legend of Sleepy Hollow is Washington Irving's famous character, Diedrich Knickerbocker, from which we get the name Knickerbocker, or the New York Knicks and so forth. Diedrich Knickerbocker was not really his alter ego. Um, Washington Irving, I don't think, had an alter ego in writing in that sense. But he was a fictional character he used a lot. Irving used a lot. Knickerbocker was a kind of fuddy-duddy historian weird guy, eccentric, and the notion that Irving created in a great marketing coup of the time was that Knickerbocker had left some precious papers of his histories of New York, particularly of New Amsterdam, the Dutch period, and the early New York period, the early post-Dutch-British period, uh, and the pre- and post-revolutionary period. He had left these papers and had disappeared and the papers had surfaced, they had been surfaced. And Knickerbocker was this character who was brought to light by third parties and so forth. And Irving created this fantastical creature who was a very compelling spokesman for a time that was lost already in 1819 to the mists of history. A time when the Dutch ruled Manhattan and its surrounds, and a time when Native Americans ruled Manhattan and its surrounds, and the war between the Dutch and the Swedes, 
whom they defeated, and then the British to whom they lost and finally ceded and yielded all of the colony. So Knickerbocker was his way into that prehistory, and it was Washington Irving's mechanism for us to illuminate and have illuminated for us this prehistory. This was Washington Irving's way. He spoke in his writing in many voices. His original writing was in the style of a magazine or a symposium in which many of his created voices, uh, whether they were Americans or Brits or characters of high or low fortune or diplomats from foreign countries to America, would describe America, its history, its corners and its boulevards in ways that allowed Irving to illuminate them humorously, usually. That was his main idea, or his main mechanism was humor. He could be quite sober, he could be quite serious, in fact, quite grave, but his usual mode was humor. Or his most successful mode was humor, let's say. And Knickerbocker was the most successful and famous and enduring character he created to illuminate part of American history. And Knickerbocker shows up very famously in Rip Van Winkle as our storyteller, in The Legend of Sleepy Hollow as our storyteller, and in the history of, of the Dutch colonies, which are also part of the famous, most famous parts of Irving's oeuvre. So he's a well-known guy by this time to, to those of Irving's readers who will have studied or read or become familiar with his work, Knickerbocker. And he's now kind of already a favorite by the time that this book is being published in 1819. In American literature, the idea of an alter ego for the author continues to this day as a very prominent and frequent device. The idea of characters who tell stories is perhaps not quite as common now, but the idea of alter ego still is. <clears throat> but I don't think this is an alter ego. I don't think there's any time when Irving claimed to inhabit a different character of this type. He just happens to be, Knickerbocker happens to be Irving's most famous creation in this way. Now some context on the story itself. So Irving was, I think, the most important practitioner or student of a kind of prior clash of civilizations in history, pre-American Revolution and early post-revolutionary, post-colonial phase of his time, and probably the most prominent and important commentator and insight giver <clears throat> until... Francis Parkman, who wrote the French and, uh, sorry, France and England in North America about 60 years later, 50, 50 plus years later, a long set of, so multi-volume collection of Parkman's history of the clash between French and British civilization, the main idea of which was that in North America, the main idea of which was that over their long war, <clears throat> the British colonized by bringing population to North America and the French sought chiefly to extract resources from North America and bring them back to 
France, which is why ultimately the French fell to the British for the most part, except for basically Quebec. Um, and even then, anyway, Francis Parkman was very interested in this phase. And there are some others we can think of who wrote about, for example, the Pequot War of the mid-1630s in the Massachusetts Bay. But really the mysterious mists of time pre-colonial or early colonial, pre-revolutionary, post-revolutionary phase, uh, the pre-British American phase, let's say, is still under-attended and was always under-attended. But it had certain advantages, I think, literarily for Washington Irving because it afforded him a chance to combine the universes of myth of Native Americans, of the Dutch, of the British, and then also some kind of continental themes like the Hessian soldier who is the supposed headless horseman, as the theory of the story goes in The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. And the setting, I think, that he proposes, the setting of this uncovered, inadequately reported time in the early prehistory of America allows him to be inventive and to take advantage of cross currents of mystery and myth. And I think it's a beautiful idea that is worth recovering as we consider American literature and consider American history. And it's almost a shame that so little is known about these times, both from the Native American side and from the European settler side, including, for example, the New Swedes um, and so forth. So I like that he set his stories, Washington Irving set his stories in this context as few people before or since did. And he, in particular, put the story of the legend of Sleepy Hollow in this fictional town called Sleepy Hollow. It's, uh, I think it's a kind of a glen, um, which is a valley in and around a place that still exists called Tarrytown. If you grew up in the New York area as I did, you know Tarrytown. You might have gone to school with kids from Tarrytown. You might have gone to Tarrytown. Um, but Tarrytown is an old Dutch settlement. It became part of the British colonial territory that was ceded by or from New Netherland in 1674 when the Treaty of Westminster was signed, but before that it was Dutch, and it was captured, I believe, from the Mohicans, as in last of the Mohicans, in the Hudson River. I think the Tappansee Bridge today basically empties out into Tarrytown. So it's very familiar and yet very ancient in American terms to those of us who have some sense of having grown up in New York and so forth. And the word Tarrytown, the word Tarry comes from Apparently comes from the word, the Dutch word tare or tarwe. I don't know how to pronounce it, which means wheats or grain. 
And so it's a it's an old place uh, that became also the home of John D. Rockefeller and so forth, and a place of great significance and would have been familiar to people in the revolutionary time, excuse me, in the 1819 time as a scene of some action during the revolutionary time, including action that involved the famous trader Benedict Arnold and so forth. So it's a town that's got some lore and the story is set by Washington Irving, I think very deliberately in a town that has lore from the revolutionary time, in a town that has lore from the New Netherland or New Amsterdam time and period, and also from the Native American time. And yet he puts the story exactly in a valley, a glen that is adjacent to or around Tarrytown, so as to make it both knowable to us as the audience and yet distinctive and new. So in some sense, he's putting it in a place that has some similarity to, for example, Gotham. Gotham, where Batman lives, is not New York, but it's a familiar enough copy of New York that we can imbue it with all these things that we know New York doesn't have. And of course, it's a different place, a different universe that allows the authors who write about Gotham to make it whatever they want it to be. By the way, Gotham is also a word that we got in English language from Washington Irving. He called New York, he called New York City Gotham, and that stuck, and we get it directly from him and from no one else, which might also interest you. So now we turn to The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, and I'll offer some more commentary as we go, but I think you're going to love this story as much as I do. The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, and it claims to be found among the papers of the late Diedrich Knickerbocker. And here's a preambulatory poem from the Castle of Indolence. A pleasing land of drowsy head it was, of dreams that wave before the half-shut eye, and of gay castles in the clouds that pass, forever flushing round a summer sky. So we have an idea that there's a dreamland in which the sun is always shining and things are always beautiful, which already sounds ominous, right? I guess we know now that the legend of Sleepy Hollow is what we would cause, call a gothic story, a horror story. But uh, perhaps for that reason, we think that this preambulatory poem that strikes us as ominous or foreboding but it already feels foreboding, I think, even if we don't know that. I think it would have for the reader of the time. In the bosom of one of those spacious coves which indent the eastern shore of Hudson, at that broad expansion of the river denominated by the ancient Dutch navigators the Tappan Zee, there's the Tappan Zee Bridge, and where they always prudently shortened sail and implored the protection of St. Nicholas when they crossed, there lies a small market town or rural port which by some is called Greensburg, but which is more generally and properly known by the name of Tarrytown. This name was given, we are told, in former days by the good housewives of the adjacent country, from the inveterate propensity of their husbands to linger about the village tavern on market days. Be that as it may, I do not vouch for the fact, remember he's talking as Knickerbocker, be that as it may, I do not vouch for the fact, but merely advert to it for the sake of being precise and authentic. This is Knickerbocker's constant refrain that he is 
simply a reporter of accuracy and historical precision, and that you couldn't forgive him for being wrong because all he's doing is reporting what he has researched. Not far from this village, perhaps about two miles, there is a little valley, there's the glen, or rather lap of land among high hills, which is one of the quietest places in the whole world. So here we are, we're in a hidden valley, a classic hidden valley where time stays, stands still and things happen that are different from the things that happen in the real or normal world, even at the time, just a few miles away. A small brook glides through it with just murmur enough to lull one to repose, and the occasional whistle of a quail or tapping of a woodpecker is almost the only sound that ever breaks in upon the uniform tranquility. I recollect that when a strip stripling, my first exploit in squirrel shooting was in a grove of tall walnut trees that shades one side of the valley. I had wandered into it at noontime, how bucolic, when all nature is peculiarly quiet and was startled by the roar of my own gun as it broke the Sabbath stillness around and was prolonged and reverberated by the angry echoes. If ever I should wish for a retreat whither I might steal from the world and its distractions and dream quietly about the rem remnant of a troubled life, I know of none more promising than this little valley. From the listless repose of the place and the peculiar character of its inhabitants, who are descendants from the original Dutch settlers, this sequestered glen has long been known by the name of Sleepy Hollow, and its rustic lads are called the Sleepy Hollow Boys throughout all the neighboring country. So you see already there's a notion that a unique and segregated race of people has somehow plugged along in this tiny valley for some time. And now the mystery deepens. And very quickly, we're already only on the second page, basically. A drowsy, dreamy influence seems to hang over the land and to pervade the very atmosphere. Some say that the place was bewitched by a high German doctor during the early days of the settlement. Others, that an old Indian chief, the prophet or wizard of his tribe, held his powwows there before the country was discovered by Master Hendrick Hudson. Certain it is, the place still continues under the sway of some witching power that holds a spell over the minds of the good people, causing them to walk in a continual reverie. They are given to all kinds of marvelous beliefs, are subject to trances and visions, and frequently see strange sights and hear music and voices in the air. The whole neighborhood abounds with local tales, haunted spots, and twilight superstitions. Stars shoot and meteors glare oftener across the valley than in any other part of the country. And the nightmare, two words, the nightmare, with her whole ninefold, seems to make it the favorite scene of her gambles. The dominant spirit, however, that haunts this enchanted region and seems to be commander-in-chief of all the powers of the air is the apparition of a figure on horseback without a head. It is said by some to be the ghost of a Hessian trooper whose head had been carried away by a cannonball in some nameless battle during the Revolutionary War, and who is ever and anon seen by the country folk hurrying along in the gloom of night as if on the wings of the wind. His haunts are not confined to the valley, but extend at times to the adjacent roads and especially to the vicinity of a church at no great distance. Indeed, certain of the most authentic historians of those parts 
who have been careful in collecting and collating the floating facts concerning this specter, allege that the body of the trooper having been buried in the churchyard, the ghost rides forth to the scene of battle in knightly quest of his head, and that the rushing speed with which he sometimes passes along the hollow like a midnight blast is owing to his being belated and in a hurry to get back to the churchyard before daybreak. Such is the general purport of this legendary superstition, which has furnished materials for many a wild story in that region of shadows. And the specter is known at all the countryside fires by the name of the Headless Horseman of Sleepy Hollow. It is remarkable that the visionary propensity I have mentioned is not confined to the native inhabitants of the valley, but is unconsciously imbibed by everyone who resides there for a time. However wide awake they may have been before they entered that sleepy region, they are sure in a little time to inhale the witching influence of the air and to begin to grow imaginative, to dream dreams and see apparitions. I mention this peaceful spot with all possible laud, for it is in such little retired Dutch valleys found here and there embosomed in the great state of New York that population, manners, and customs remain fixed while the great torrent of migration and improvement, which is making such incessant changes in other parts of this restless country, sweeps by them unobserved. They are like those little nooks of still water which border a rapid stream, where we may see the straw and bubble riding quietly at anchor, or slowly revolving in their mimic harbor, undisturbed by the rush of the passing current. Though many years have elapsed since I trod the drowsy shades of Sleepy Hollow, Yet I question whether I should not still find the same trees and the same families vegetating in its sheltered bosom. This idea that there are forgotten corners and veils and glens where civilization kind of stops frozen in time and doesn't change, doesn't evolve, is something that would have been familiar as a trope to Europeans vis-a-vis -vis European towns and vales and glens. It is something that certainly would have been familiar to readers of English literature vis-a-vis -vis the Midlands or the Cotswolds, set aside Scotland, valleys in Central Europe as in Switzerland where languages are frozen in time, places in the Pyrenees where there were redoubts of Baptists until the 19th century or late 18th century, 800 years in hiding effectively, 700 years in hiding. So this idea that time stands still in certain areas would have been very familiar. And yet it would not have been an idea that was frequently yet applied to the United States or America uh, in the pre-revolutionary period because the country just wasn't that old yet and the literature of or, or about the Native Americans was not very wide in distribution. So he applies this idea, Washington Irving, that would have been familiar to America and in so doing, I think he claims that 
our history is now getting older. Our history is now sort of ancient enough to stand legitimately next to the history that is similar of Europe and of England. And I think already that's an important statement that he's making, which I appreciate a lot because he's so pivotal in the history of American letters. We continue. In this by-place of nature, there abode in a remote period of American history, that is to say some 30 years since, a worthy white of the name of Ichabod Crane. Here he is, our character Ichabod Crane, who sojourned, or as he expressed it, tarried in Sleepy Hollow for the purpose of instructing the children of the vicinity. He was a native of Connecticut, a state which supplies the Union with pioneers for the mind as well as for the forest, and sends forth yearly its legions of frontier woodmen and country schoolmasters. The cognomen of Crane was not inapplicable to his person. He was tall, but exceedingly lank, with narrow shoulders, long arms and legs, hands that dangled a mile out of his sleeves, feet that might have served for shovels, and his whole frame most loosely hung together. His head was small and flat at top, with huge ears, large green glassy eyes, and a long snipe nose, so that it looked like a weathercock perched upon his spindle neck to tell which way the wind blew. To see him striding along the profile of a hill on a windy day, with his clothes bagging and fluttering about him, one might have mistaken him for the genius of famine descending upon the earth, or some scarecrow eloped from a cornfield. This image of Ichabod Crane as a schoolteacher who looks like the genius of famine, <laughs> the spirit of famine, is quite different from Tim Burton's idea of Ichabod Crane in Johnny Depp, who's a kind of eccentric constable, policeman, detective, playing effectively Johnny Depp. <laughs> His schoolhouse was a low building of one large room, rudely constructed of logs, the windows partly glazed and partly patched with leaves of old copybooks. It was most ingeniously secured at vacant hours by a withe, twisted in the handle of the door, and stakes set against the window shutters, so that though a thief might get in with perfect ease, he would find some embarrassment in getting out, an idea most probably borrowed from the architect, Joost van Houten, from the mystery of an eel pot. So what's a with? It's spelled W-I-T-H-E. It's like a rope made from some twisted twigs. The schoolhouse stood in a rather lonely but pleasant situation, just at the foot of a windy hill, excuse me, a woody hill, with a brook running close by and a formidable birch tree growing at one end of it. What's a formidable birch tree, I wonder? Hmm. From hence the low murmur of his pupils' voices conning over their lessons might be heard of a drowsy summer's day, like the hum of a beehive, interrupted now and then by the authoritative voice of the master, in the tone of menace or command or peradventure, by the appalling sound of the birch, as he urged some tardy loiterer along the flowery path of knowledge. Truth to say, he was a conscientious man, and ever bore in mind the golden maxim, spare the rod and spoil the child. Ichabod Crane's scholars certainly were not spoiled. I would not have imagined, however, that he was one of those cruel potentates of the school who joy in the smart of their subjects. On the contrary, he administered justice with discrimination rather than severity, taking the burden off 
the backs of the weak and laying it on those of the strong. Your more puny stripling, that winced at the least flourish of the rod, was passed by with indulgence, but the claims of justice were satisfied by inflicting a double portion on some little tough, wrong-headed, broad-skirted Dutch urchin, who sulked and swelled and grew dogged and sullen beneath the birch. All this he called doing his duty by their parents, quote-unquote, and he never inflicted a chastisement without following it by the assurance so consult consolatory to the smarting urchin that he, quote, would remember it and thank him for it the longest day he had to live, unquote. When school hours were over, he was even the companion and playmate of the larger boys, and on holiday afternoons would convey, sorry, would convoy some of the smaller ones home who happened to have pretty sisters or good housewives for mothers, noted for the comforts of the cupboard. Indeed, it behooved him to keep on good terms with his pupils. The revenue arising from his school was small and would have been scarcely sufficient to furnish him with daily bread, for he was a huge feeder, and the lank had the dilating powers of an anaconda. But to help out his maintenance, he was, according to country custom in those parts, boarded and lodged at the houses of the farmers whose children he instructed. With these, he lived successfully a week at a time, thus going the rounds of the neighborhood with all his worldly effects tied up in a cotton handkerchief. That all this might not be too onerous on the purses of his rustic patrons who are apt to consider the cost of schooling a grievous burden, and schoolmasters are as mere drones, he had various ways of rendering himself both useful and agreeable. He assisted the farmers occasionally in the lighter labors of their farms, helped to make hay, mended defenses, took the horses to water, drove the cows from pasture, and cut wood for the winter fire. He laid aside, too, all the dominant dignity and absolute sway with which he lorded it in his little empire, the school, and became wonderfully gentle and ingratiating. He found favor in the eyes of the mothers by petting the children, particularly the youngest, and like the lion bold, which Willem so magnanimously the lamb did hold, he would sit with the child on one knee and rock a cradle with his foot for whole hours together. We begin to get an impression of the portrait of this guy is not very likable, which is not something that comes across in some of the adaptations or the lore of the story, I think. In addition to his other vocations, he was the singing master of the neighborhood and picked up many bright shillings by instructing the young folks in psalmody. It was a matter of no little vanity to him on Sundays to take his station in front of the church gallery with a band of chosen singers where, in his own mind, he completely carried away the palm from the parson. Certain it is, his voice resounded far above all the rest of the congregation, and there are peculiar quavers still to be heard in that church, and which even which may even be heard half a mile off, quite to the opposite of the, of the mill pond of a still Sunday morning, which are said to be legitimately descended from the nose of Ichabod Crane. Thus, by diverse little makeshifts in that ingenious way, which is commonly denominated by hook and by crook, quote-unquote, the worthy pedagogue got on tolerably enough, and was thought by all who understood nothing of the labor of headwork to have a wonderfully easy life of it. The schoolmaster is generally a man of some importance in the female circle of a rural neighborhood, being considered a kind of idle gentleman-like personage, of vastly superior taste and accomplishments to the rough country swains, and indeed inferior in learning only to the parson. His appearance, therefore, is apt to occasion some little stir at the tea table of a farmhouse, and the addition of a supernumerary dish of cakes or sweetmeats, or, peradventure, the parade of a silver teapot. Our man of letters, therefore, was peculiarly happy in the smiles of all the country damsels. How he would figure among them in the churchyard between services on Sundays, gathering grapes for them, 
from the wild vines that overrun the surrounding trees, reciting for their amusement all the epitaphs on the tombstones, or sauntering with a whole bevy of them along the banks of the adjacent mill pond, while the more bashful country bumpkins hung sheepishly back, envying his superior elegance and address. From his half-itinerant life also, he was a kind of traveling gazette, carrying the whole budget of local gossip from house to house, so that his appearance was always greeted with satisfaction. He was, moreover, esteemed by the women as a man of great erudition, for he had read several books quite through, and was a perfect master of Cotton Mather's History of New England Witchcraft, in which, by the way, he most firmly and potently believed. So a sidebar on Cotton Mather is probably interesting here. Cotton Mather and his father, Increase Mather, both of the 17th century, Cotton lived into the 18th century, were highly identified with Harvard. In fact, I lived in Mather House when I was a student at Harvard College. And I believe Increase was the president of Harvard, whereas Cotton was not later. Cotton was involved in the Salem witch trials and defended them. The Salem witch trials took place in the early 1690s. I'm not familiar with this work, although he wrote many, many works. I'm not familiar with this work, Cotton Mather's History of New England Witchcraft, to which Irving adverts. I'm not sure it really is a real work, although I could be wrong. But anyway, Cotton Mather and his father had a kind of falling out because Increase, the dad, did not really support the extremism of the persecution that unfolded in the Salem Witch Trials. The Salem Witch Trials were a matter of great controversy also at the time, not just since the days of McCarthy and Arthur Miller's Crucible. They were very controversial at the time, and Cotton Mather's son was bullish on them, and the dad was not. Anyway, this is Irving's way of explaining that Ichabod Crane was a bit of a parvenu, that he was aspirational in his intellectual interests and what they might mean, and also a bit of a rube. We continue. He was, Ichabod, he was in fact an odd mixture of small, of small shrewdness and simple credulity. His appetite for the marvelous and his powers of digesting it were equally extraordinary, and both had been increased by his residence in this spellbound region. No tale was too gross or monstrous for his capacious swallow. It was often his delight, after his school was dismissed of an afternoon, to stretch himself on the rich bed of clover, bordering the little brook that whimpered by his schoolhouse, and there con over old Mather's direful tales until the gathering dusk of evening made the printed page a mere mist before his eyes. Then, as he wended his way, by swamp and stream and awful woodland to the farmhouse where he happened to be quartered, every sound of nature at that witching hour fluttered his excited imagination. The moan of the poor whippoorwill 
from the hillside, the boding cry of the tree toad, that harbinger of storm, the dreary hooting of the screech owl, or the sudden rustling in the thicket of birds frightened from their roost. And then Irving has an asterisk about the whippoorwill. The whippoorwill is a bird which is only heard at night. It receives its name from its note, which is thought to resemble those words. Interesting that he thought that was necessary to add, probably for his English audience. The fireflies, too, which sparkled most vividly in the darkest places now and then, startled him as one of uncommon brightness would stream across his path, and if by chance a huge blockhead of a beetle came winging his blundering flight against him, the poor varlet was ready to give up the ghost with the idea that he was struck with a witch's token. His only resource on such occasions, either to drown thought or to drive away evil spirits, was to sing psalm tunes, and the good people of Sleepy Hollow, as they sat by their doors of an evening, were often filled with awe at hearing his nasal melody, quote, in linked sweetness long drawn out, unquote, floating from the distant hill or along the dusky road. So that quotation, in linked sweetness, sweetness, long drawn out, is actually a slight misquotation of John Milton's poem Allegro, or Allegro, and in the poem there is the phrase of linked sweetness long drawn out, and it has to do with a song that is being sung, a warbling that is being sung um, and is heard and it strikes the listener in an important way for the sake of that poem. Anyway, here's Irving showing off a bit and maybe his readers from England would know Milton that well. But in any case, he's definitely showing Ichabod Crane as a bit of a simpleton or a dunce or kind of a fool who is silly enough to read these terrifying things, believe them, believe them, and then walk home at night and be fearful of birds chirping. Another of his sources of fearful pleasure was to pass long winter evenings with the old Dutch wives as they sat spinning by the fire with a row of apples roasting and sputtering along the hearth and listened to their marvelous tales of ghosts and goblins and haunted fields and haunted brooks and haunted bridges, and haunted houses, and particularly of the Headless Horseman, or Galloping Hessian of the Hollow, as they sometimes called him. So now we're setting up the idea that Ichabod Crane is an especially impressionable guy who believes in the occult, who believes in witchcraft, and now there's this local legend about the Hessian of Sleepy Hollow, the Headless Horseman, that will frighten Ichabod Crane. He would delight them equally by his anecdotes of witchcraft and of the direful omens and portentous sights and sounds in the air which prevailed in the earlier times of Connecticut and would frighten them woefully with speculations upon comets and shooting stars and with the alarming fact that the world did absolutely turn round and that they were half the time topsy-turvy. But if there was a pleasure in all this while snugly cuddling in the chimney corner of a chamber that was all of a ruddy glow from the crackling wood fire, and where, of course, no specter dared to show its face, it was clearly, sorry, dearly purchased by the specter, excuse me, it was dearly purchased by the terrors of his subsequent walk homewards. What fearful shapes and shadows beset his path, 
amidst the dim and ghastly glare of a snowy night. With what wistful look did his eye did he eye every trembling ray of light streaming across the waste fields from some distant window? How often was he appalled by some shrub covered with snow, which, like a sheeted specter, beset his very path? How often did he shrink with curdling awe at the sound of his own steps on the frosty crust beneath his feet, and dread to look over his shoulder, lest he should behold some uncouth being tramping close behind him? And how often was he thrown into complete dismay by some rushing blast, howling among the trees, and the idea that it was the galloping Hessian on one of his nightly scourings? You can kind of project a bit onto this, right? If you see a scary movie, and then you kind of feel yourself alone in the house, and you hear a creak of some wood settling, you might be scared. Well, that's Ichabod Crane in this scenario, and to be sure, we are seeing that this guy has an active imagination and is susceptible of imagining fearful things because he believes in fearful things. All these, however, were mere terrors of the night, phantoms of the mind that walk in darkness, and though he had seen many specters in his time and been more than once beset by Satan in diverse shapes in his lonely perambulations, Yet daylight put an end to all these evils, and he would have passed a pleasant life of it, in despite of the devil and all his works, if his path had not been crossed by a being that causes more perplexity to mortal man than ghosts, goblins, and the whole race of witches put together, and that was a woman. Among the musical, disi musical disciples who assembled one evening in each week to receive his instructions in psalmody was Katrina van Tessel, the daughter and only child of a substantial Dutch farmer. She was a blooming lass of fresh eighteen, plump as a partridge, ripe and melting and rosy-cheeked as one of her father's peaches, and universally famed not merely for her beauty, but for her vast expectations, meaning she was going to have a large inheritance. She was, withal, a little of a coquette, as might be perceived even in her dress, which was a mixture of ancient and modern fashions, Irving loved story about fashion, as most suited to set off her charms. She wore the ornaments of pure yellow gold, which her great-great-grandmother had brought over from Sardam, the tempting stomacher of the olden time, and withal a provokingly short petticoat to display the prettiest foot an ankle in the country round. Ichabod Crane had a soft and foolish heart toward the sex, and it is not to be wondered at that so tempting a morsel soon found favor in his eyes, more especially after he had visited her in her paternal mansion. Old Baltus Van Tassel was a perfect picture of a thriving, contented, liberal-hearted farmer. He seldom, it is true, sent either his eyes or his thoughts beyond the boundaries of his own farm, but within those, everything was snug, happy, and well-conditioned. He was satisfied with his wealth, but not proud of it, and piqued himself upon the hearty abundance rather than the style in which he lived. His stronghold was situated on the banks of the Hudson, in one of those green, sheltered, fertile nooks, in which the Dutch farmers are so fond of nestling. I think that's his entire impression of Dutchmen in 
New Amsterdam and the successor colony of successor colonies of New York and New England that the Dutch are effectively nestlers. I think that's the entire mood uh, that Irving ascribes to them. A great elm tree spread its broad branches over it, at the foot of which bubbled up a spring of the softest and sweetest water in a little well formed of a barrel, and then stole sparkling away through the grass to a neighboring brook that babbled along among elders and dwarf willows. Hard by the farmhouse was a vast barn that might have served for a church, every window and crevice of which seemed bursting forth with the treasures of the farm. The flail was busily resounding within it from morning, morning to night. Swallows and martins skimmed twittering about the eaves, and rows of pigeons, some with one eye turned up as if watching the weather, some with their heads under their wings were buried in their bosoms, and others, swelling and cooing and bowing about their dames, were enjoying the sunshine on the roof. Sleek, unwieldy porkers were grunting in the repose and abundance of their pens, from whence sallied forth now and then troops of sucking pigs as if to snuff the air. What a bucolic sight. A stately squadron of snowy geese were riding in an adjoining pond. Let's go, a stately squadron of snowy geese. Convoying, convoying whole fleets of ducks, regiments of turkeys, were gobbling through the farmyard and guinea fowls fretting about like ill-tempered housewives with their peevish, discontented cry. Before the barn door strutted the gallant cock, that pattern of a husband, a warrior, and a fine gentleman, clapping his burnished wings and crowing in the pride and gladness of his heart, sometimes tearing up the earth with his feet and then generously calling his ever-hungry family of wives and children to enjoy the rich morsel which he had discovered. The pedagogue's mouth watered as he looked upon the sumptuous promise of luxurious winter fare. In his devouring mind's eye, he pictured to himself every roasting pig running about with a pudding in his belly and an apple in his mouth. The pigeons were snugly put to bed in a comfortable pie and tucked in with a coverlet of crust. The geese were swimming in their own gravy and the ducks pairing cosily in dishes like snug married couples with a decent competency of onion sauce. A competency of onion sauce. In the porkers, he saw carved out the future sleek side of bacon and juicy relishing ham. Not a turkey, but he beheld daintily trussed up with its gizzard under its wing and peradventure a necklace of savory sausages and even bright chanticleer himself lay sprawling on his back in a side dish with uplifted claws as if craving that quarter which his chivalrous spirit disdained to ask while living. As the enraptured Ichabod fancied all this, and as he rolled his great green eyes over the fat meadow lands, the rich fields of wheat, of rye, of buckwheat, and Indian corn, and the orchards burdened with ruddy fruit, which surrounded the warm tenement of Vast Tassel, of Van Tassel, his heart yearned after the damsel who was to inherit these domains, and his imagination expanded of the idea how they might be readily turned into cash, and the money invested in immense tracts of wild land, and shingle palaces in the wilderness. Nay, his busy fancy already realized his hopes and presented to him the blooming Katrina with a whole family of children mounted on the top of a wagon loaded with household trumpery with pots and kettles dangling beneath. And he beheld himself 
bestriding a pacing mare with a colt at her heels, setting up for Kentucky, Tennessee, or the Lord knows where. When he entered the house, the conquest of his heart was complete. It was one of those spacious farmhouses, <laughs> he loves the house, with high-ridged but lowly sloping roofs built in the style handed down from the first Dutch settlers. The low projecting eaves formed a piazza along the front, capable of being closed up in bad weather. Under this were hung flails, harnesses, various utensils of husbandry, and nets for fishing in the neighboring river. Benches were built along the sides for summer use, and a great spinning wheel at one end and a churn at the other showed the various uses to which this important porch might be devoted. From this piazza, the wandering Ichabod entered the hall, which formed the center of the mansion and the place of usual residence. Here, rows of resplendent pewter, ranged on a long dresser, dazzled his eyes. In one corner stood a huge bag of wool, ready to be spun. In another, a quantity of linsey woolsey just from the loom. Ears of Indian corn and strings of dried apples and peaches hung in gay festoons upon, along the walls, mingled with the god of red peppers, and a door left ajar gave him a peep into the best parlor, where the claw-footed chairs and dark mahogany tables shone like mirrors, and irons with their accompanying shovel and tongues glistened from their covert, covert of asparagus tops, mock oranges and conch shells decorated the mantelpiece. Strings of various colored bird's eggs were suspended above it. A great ostrich egg was hung from the center of the room, and a corner cupboard, knowingly left open, displayed immense treasures of old silver and well-mended china. Isn't it interesting that tiny claws that the cupboard is, quote, knowingly left open, unquote. From the moment Ichabod laid his eyes upon these regions of delight, the peace of his mind was at an end, and his only study was how to gain the affections of the peerless daughter of Van Tassel. In this enterprise, however, he had more real difficulties than generally felt the lot of a knight-errant of yore. There is something about, of like a Don Quixote about this, isn't there? Isn't imagining enemies, dragons, imagining prizes, uh, but still a kind of foolish and pathetic character, who seldom had anything but giants, enchanters, fiery dragons, and such like easily conquered adversaries to contend with, there we go, and had to make his way merely through gates of iron and brass and walls of adamant to the castle keep, where the lady of his heart was confined, all which he achieved as easily as a man would carve his way to the center of a Christmas pie. And then the lady gave him her hand as a matter of course. Ichabod, on the contrary, had to win his way to the heart of a country coquette, beset with a labyrinth of whims and caprices, which were forever presenting new difficulties and impediments. And he had to encounter a host of fearful adversaries of real flesh and blood, the numerous rustic admirers, who beset every portal to her heart, keeping a watchful and angry eye upon each other, but ready to fly out the common cause against any new competitor. Among these, the most formidable was a burly, roaring, roistering blade of the name of Abraham, or according to the Dutch abbreviation, Brum von Brint, the hero of the country round, which rung with his feats of strength and hardihood. He was broad-shouldered and double-jointed, <laughs> double-jointed, with short curly black hair and a bluff but not unpleasant countenance, having a mingled air of fun and arrogance, 
From his Herculean frame and great powers of limb, he had received the nickname of Brom Bones, by which he was universally known. He was famed for great knowledge and skill in horsemanship, being as dexterous on horseback as a tartar. He was foremost at all races and cockfights, and with the ascendancy which bodily strength acquires in rustic life, was the umpire in all disputes, setting his hat on one side and giving his decisions with an air and tone admitting of no gainsay or appeal. Kind of reminds you of Casey at the Bat, uh, the way he is depicted. He was always ready for either a fight or a frolic, but had more mischief than ill will in his composition, and with all his overbearing roughness, there was a strong dash of waggish good humor at bottom. He had three or four boon companions who regarded him as their model, and at the head of whom he scoured the country, attending every scene of feud or merriment for miles round. In cold weather, he was distinguished by a fur cap surmounted with a flaunting fox's tail, and when the folks at a country gathering decried this well-known crest at a distance, whisking about among a squad of hard riders, they always stood by for a squall. Sometimes his crew would be heard dashing along past the farmhouses at midnight with a whoop and halloo like a troop of Don Cossacks, and the old dames, startled out of their sleep, would listen for a moment till the hurry scurry had clattered by, and then exclaim, Aye, there goes Brom Bones and his gang. You start to think that there's a bit of a foreboding. This guy who whips past everyone in the dark of the night on horseback sounds perhaps like the headless horseman. The neighbors looked upon him with a mixture of awe, admiration, and goodwill. And when any madcap prank or rustic brawl occurred in the vicinity, always shook their heads and warranted Brombones was at the bottom of it. This rantable hero had for some time singled out the blooming Katrina for the object of his uncouth gallantries. Aha, a true rival. And though his amorous toyings were something like the gentle caresses and endearments of a bear, <laughs> yet it was whispered that she did not altogether discourage his hopes. So Irving describes him as a rantipole hero. A rantipole person is a wild and reckless person. Literally um, comes from apparently the words ranty, like in what a ranting person, ranty and pole, or pole as in head. So a uh, rude and reckless person. Certain it is, his advances were signals for rival candidates to retire, who felt no inclination to cross a lion in his amours, insomuch that when his horse was seen tied to Van Tassel's paling of a Sunday night, a sure sign that his master was courting, or, as it is termed, sparking, interesting, within, all other suitors passed by in despair and carried the war into other quarters. What a great and vivid paradigm of comparison between courting and warring. Such was the formidable rival with whom Ichabod Crane had to contend, and considering all things, a stouter man than he would have shrunk from the competition, and a wiser man would have despaired. He had, however, a happy mixture of pliability and perseverance in his nature. He was in form and spirit like a supple jack, yielding, but tough. Though he bent, he never broke, and though he bowed beneath the slightest pressure, yet the moment he was away, jerk, he was as erect and carried his head as high as ever. To have taken the field openly against his rival would have been madness, for he was not a man to be thwarted in his amours. 
any more than that stormy lover Achilles. <laughs> Ichabod therefore made his advances in a quiet and gently insinuating manner. Under cover of his character of singing master, he made frequent visits at the farmhouse. Not that he had anything to apprehend from the meddlesome interference of parents, which is so often a stumbling block in the path of lovers. Bald Van Tassel was an easy indulgent soul. He loved his daughter better even than his pipe, and like a reasonable man and an excellent father, let her have her way in everything. His notable little wife, too, had enough to do to attend to her housekeeping and manage her poultry, for, as she sagely observed, ducks and geese are foolish things and must be looked after, but girls can take care of themselves. Thus, while the busy dame bustled about the house or plied her spinning wheel at one end of the piazza, honest Balt would sit smoking his evening pipe at the other, watching the achievements of a little wooden warrior, who, armed with a sword in each hand, was most valiantly fighting the wind on the pinnacle of the barn. In the meantime, Ichabod would carry on his suit with the daughter by the side of the spring under the great elm, or sauntering along in the twilight that hour so favorable to the lover's eloquence. I profess not to know how women's hearts are wooed and won. To me, they have always been matters of riddle and admiration. Some seem to have but one vulnerable point, or door of access while others have a thousand avenues and may be captured in a thousand different ways. It is a great triumph of skill to gain the former, but a still greater proof of generalship to maintain a possession of the latter, for a man must battle for his fortress at every door and window. He who wins a thousand common hearts is therefore entitled to some renown, but he who keeps undisputed sway over the heart of a coquette is indeed a hero. Certain it is, this was not the case with the redoubtable Brom Bones, and from the moment Ichabod Crane made his advances, the interests of the former evidently declined. His horse was no longer seen tied at the palings on Sunday nights, and a deadly feud gradually arose between him and the preceptor of Sleepy Hollow. Brom, who had a degree of rough chivalry in his nature, would fain have carried matters to open warfare, and have settled their pretensions to the lady according to the mode of those most concise and simple reasoners, the knights errant of yore, by single combat. But Ichabod was too conscious of the superior might of his adversary to enter the lists against him. He had overheard a boast of bones that he would double the schoolmaster up and lay him on a shelf of his own schoolhouse, and he was too wary to give him an opportunity there was something extremely provoking in this obstinately pacific system. It left Brom no alternative to but to draw upon the funds of rustic waggery in his disposition and to play off boorish practical jokes upon his rival. Ichabod became the object of whimsical persecution to Bones and his gang of rough riders. They harried his hitherto peaceful domains, smoked out his singing school by stopping up the chimney broke into the schoolhouse at night in spite of its formidable fascinatings, fastenings of width and window stakes, and turned everything topsy-turvy so the poor schoolmaster began to think all the witches in the country held their meetings there. But what was still more annoying, Brom took all opportunities of turning him into ridicule in presence of his mistress, and had a scoundrel dog whom he taught to whine in the most ludicrous manner and introduced as a rival of Ichabod's, to instruct her in psalmody. In this way, matters went on for some time, 
without producing any material effect on the relative situations of the contending powers. On a fine autumnal afternoon, Ichabod, in pensive mood, sat enthroned on the lofty stool from whence he usually watched all the concerns of his little literary realm. In his hand he swayed a ferule, that scepter of despotic power, the birch of justice reposed on three nails behind the throne, a constant terror to evildoers, while on the desk before him might be seen sundry contraband articles and prohibited weapons, detected upon the persons of idle urchins, such as half-munched apples, pop-guns, whirligigs, fly-cages, and whole legions of rampant little paper gamecocks. Apparently, there had been some appalling act of justice recently inflicted, for his scholars were all busily intent upon their books, or slyly whispering behind them with one eye kept upon the master, and a kind of buzzing stillness reigned throughout the schoolroom. That's good, buzzing stillness. We can all recognize that. It was suddenly interrupted by the appearance of a negro in toe-cloth jacket and trousers, a round-crowned fragment of a hat, like the cap of Mercury, and mounted on the back of a ragged, wild, half-broken colt which he managed with a rope by way of halter. He came clattering up to the school door with an invitation to Ichabod to attend a merrymaking, or, quote, quilting frolic, unquote, to be held that evening at Menhir Van Tessel's. And having delivered his message with that air of importance and effort at fine language which a Negro is apt to display on petty embassies of the kind, he dashed over the brook and was seen scampering away up the hollow, full of the importance and hurry of his mission. All was now bustle and hubbub in the late quiet schoolroom. The scholars were hurried through their lessons without stopping at trifles. Those who were nimble skipped over half with impunity, and those who were tardy had a smart application now and then in the rear to quicken their speed or help them over a tall word. Books were flung aside without being put away on the shelves. Inkstands were overturned, Benches thrown down, and the whole school was turned loose an hour before the usual time, bursting forth like a legion of young imps yelping and racketing about the green in joy at their early emancipation. The gallant Ichabod now spent at least an extra half hour at his toilet, brushing and furbishing up his best and indeed only suit of rusty black and arranging his looks by a bit of broken looking glass that hung up in the schoolhouse. That he might make his appearance before his mistress in the true style of a cavalier, he borrowed a horse from the farmer with whom he was domiciliated, a cleric old Dutchman of the name of Hans Van Ripper, and thus gallantly mounted, issued forth like a knight-errant in quest of adventures. But it is meet I should, in the true spirit of romantic story, give some account of the looks and equipments of my hero and his steed. Here we go, I guess, got Don Quixote style, right? The animal he bestrode was a broken-down plow-horse that had outlived almost everything but his viciousness. <laughs> he was gaunt and shagged, with a ewe-neck and a head like a hammer. His rusty mane and tail were tangled and knotted with burrs. One eye had lost its pupil and was glaring and spectral, but the other had the gleam of a genuine devil in it. Still, he must have had fire and metal in his day, if we may judge from the name he bore of gunpowder. He had, in fact, been a favorite steed of his master's, the choleric Van Ripper, who was a furious rider and had infused very probably some of his own spirit into the animal. For old 
and broken down as he looked, there was more of the lurking devil in him than in any young filly in the country. Ichabod was a suitable figure for such a steed. He rode with short stirrups, which brought his knees nearly up to the pommel of the saddle. His sharp elbows stuck out like grasshoppers. He carried his whip perpendicularly in his hand, like a scepter, and as his horse jogged on, the motion of his arms was not unlike the flapping of a pair of wings. A small wool hat rested on the top of his nose, for so his scanty strip of forehead might be called, and the skirts of his black coat fluttered out almost to the horse's tail. Such was the appearance of Ichabod and his steed as they shambled out of the gate of Hans Van Ripper, and it was altogether such an apparition as is seldom to be met with in broad daylight. It was, as I have said, a fine autumnal day. The sky was clear and serene, and nature wore that rich and golden livery which we always associate with the idea of abundance. That's good. That is very interesting, isn't it? You associate with abundance. The forests had put on their sober brown and yellow, while some trees of the tenderer kind had been nipped by the frosts into brilliant dyes of orange, purple, and scarlet. Streaming files of wild ducks began to make their appearance high in the air. The bark of the squirrel might be heard from the groves of beech and hickory nuts, and the pensive whistle of the quail at intervals from the neighboring stubble field. The small birds were taking their farewell blank banquets. In the fullness of their revelry, they fluttered, chirping and frolicking from bush to bush and tree to tree, capricious from the very profusion and variety around them. There was the honest cock-robin, the favorite game of stripling sportsmen, with its loud, querulous note, and the twittering blackbirds flying in sable clouds, and the golden-winged woodpecker with his crimson crest, his broad black gorget and splendid plumage, and the cedar bird with its red-tipped wings and yellow-tipped tail and its little Montero cap of feathers, and the blue jay that noisy coxcomb in his gay light blue coat and white underclothes, screaming and chattering, nodding and bobbing and bowing and pretending to be on good terms with every songster of the grove. As Ichabod jogged slowly on his way, his eye, ever open to every symptom of culinary abundance, ranged with the delight over the treasures of jolly autumn. On all sides he beheld vast store of apples, some hanging in oppressive opulence on the trees, some gathered into baskets and barrels for the market, others heaped up in rich piles for the cider press. Further on he beheld great fields of Indian corn with its golden ears peeping from their leafy coverts, and holding out the promise of cakes and hasty pudding, and the yellow pumpkins lying beneath them, turning up their fair round bellies to the sun and giving ample prospects of the most luxurious of pies. And anon he passed the fragrant buckwheat fields, breathing the odor of the beehive, and as he beheld them, soft anticipation stole over his mind of dainty slapjacks, well buttered and garnished with honey or treacle by the delicate little dimpled hand of Katrina Van Tassel. It's excellent, this Irving quality of tourism through the Hudson Valley, through New York, through America. It must have been very appealing to his overseas readers. 
Thus feeding his mind with many sweet thoughts and, quote, sugared suppositions, unquote, he journeyed along the sides of a range of hills which look about out upon some of the goodliest scenes of the mighty Hudson. The sun gradually wheeled his broad disk down into the west. The wide bosom of the Tappan Zee lay motionless and glassy, excepting that here and there a gentle undulation waved and prolonged the blue shadow of the distant mountain. A few amber clouds floated in the sky without a breath of air to move them. The horizon was of a fine golden tint, changing gradually into a pure apple green, and from that into the deep blue of the mid-heaven. A slanting ray lingered on the woody crests of the precipices that overhung some parts of the river, giving greater depth to the dark gray and purple of their rocky sides. A sloop was loitering in the distance, dropping slowly down with the tide, her sail hanging uselessly against the mast, and as the reflection of the sky gleamed along the still water, it seemed as if the vessel was suspended in the air. It was toward evening that Ichabod arrived at the castle of the Hare Van Tassel, which he found thronged with the pride and flower of the adjacent country. Old farmers, a spare, leathern-faced race, in homespun coats and breeches, blue stockings, huge shoes, and magnificent pewter buckles. Their brisk, withered little dames in close-crimped caps, long-waisted short gowns, homespun petticoats, with scissors and pincushions and gay calico pockets hanging on the outside. Buxom lasses, almost as antiquated as their mothers, excepting wear a straw hat, a fine riband, or perhaps a white frock gave symptoms of city innovation. It's quite interesting. He doesn't actually use full sentences here, no subject and verb necessarily. Um, it's quite appealing for the modern reader. The sons in short, square, skirted coats with rows of stupendous brass buttons and their hair generally cued in the fashion of the times, especially if they could procure an eel skin for the purpose, it being esteemed throughout the country as a potent nourisher and strengthener of the hair. Brom Bones, however, was the hero of the scene, having come to the gathering on his favorite steed, Daredevil, a creature like himself full of metal and mischief, and which no one but himself could manage. He was, in fact, noted for preferring vicious animals given to all kinds of tricks, which kept the rider in constant risk of his neck, for he held a tractable, well-broken horse, as unworthy of a lad of spirit. Fain would I pause to dwell upon the world of charms that burst upon the enraptured gaze of my hero as he entered the state parlor of Van Tassel's mansion. Not those of the bevy of buxom lasses with their luxurious display of red and white, but the ample charms of a genuine Dutch country tea table in the sumptuous time of autumn. Such heaped-up platters of cakes of various and almost indescribable kinds, known only to experienced Dutch housewives. There was the dotty doughnut, the tender oily cake, and the crisp and crumbling cruller, sweet cakes and short cakes, ginger cakes and honey cakes, and the whole family of cakes. And then there were apple pies and peach pies and pumpkin pies, besides slices of ham and smoked beef, and moreover delectable dishes of preserved plums and peaches and pears and quinces, not to mention broiled shad and roasted chickens together with bowls of milk and cream, all mingled higgledy, higgledy piggledy, pretty much as I have enumerated them, with a motherly teapot sending up its clouds of vapor from the midst. Heaven bless the mark! I want breath and time to discuss this banquet as it deserves, and am too eager to get on with my story. Happily, Ichabod Crane was not in so great a hurry as his historian, but did ample justice to every dainty. 
He was a kind and thankful creature, whose heart dilated in proportion as his skin was filled with good cheer, and whose spirits rose with eating, as some men's do with drink. He could not help to rolling his large eyes round him as he ate, and chuckling with the possibility that he might one day be lord of all this scene of almost unimaginable luxury and splendor. Then he thought how soon he'd turn his back upon the old schoolhouse, snap his fingers in the face of Hans von Ripper and every other niggardly patron, and kick any itinerant pedagogue out of doors that should dare to call him comrade. Old Baltus van Tassel moved about among his guests, with a face dilated with content, content and good humor, round and jolly as the harvest moon. His hospitable attentions were brief, but expressive, being confined to a shake of the hand, a slap on the shoulder, a loud laugh, and a pressing invitation to fall to and help themselves, quote-unquote. And now the sound of the music from the common room or hall summoned the dance. The musician was an old, gray-headed Negro who had been the itinerant orchestra of the neighborhood for more than half a century. His instrument was as old and battered as himself. The greater part of the time he scraped away on two or three strings, accompanying every movement of the bow with a motion of the head, bowing almost to the ground, and stamping with his foot whenever a fresh couple were to start. Ichabod prided himself upon his dancing as much as upon his vocal powers. Not a limb, not a fiber about him was idle, and to have seen his loosely hung frame in full motion and clattering about the room, you would have thought St. Vitus himself, that blessed patron of the dance, was figuring before you in person, of course. A lot of hysterical movements were named after St. Vitus. He was the admiration of all the Negroes, who, having gathered of all ages and sizes from the farm and the neighborhood, stood forming a period of shining black faces at every door and window, gazing with delight at the scene, rolling their white eyeballs, and showing grinning rows of ivory from ear to ear. How could the flogger of urchins be otherwise than animated and joyous? The lady of his heart was his partner of the dance, and smiling graciously in reply to all his amorous oglings, while Brom Bones, sorely smitten with love and jealousy, sat brooding by himself in one corner. When the dance was at an end, Ichabod was attracted to a knot of the sager folks, who, with old Van Tassel, sat smoking at one end of the piazza, gossiping over former times, and drawling out long stories about the war. This neighborhood, at the time of which I am speaking, was one of those highly favored places which abound with chronicle and great men. The British and American line had run near it during the war. It had, it had, therefore, been the scene of marauding, and been infested with refugees, cowboys, and all kinds of border chivalry. Just sufficient time had elapsed to enable each storyteller to dress up his tale with a little becoming fiction, and in the indistinctness of his recollection to make himself the hero of every exploit. There was the story of Dafu Martling, a large blue-bearded Dutchman, who had nearly taken a British frigate with an old iron nine-pounder from a mud breastwork, only that his gun burst at the sixth discharge. And there was an old gentleman, who shall be nameless, being too rich a minier to be lightly mentioned, who in the Battle of White Plains, being an excellent master of defense, parried a musket ball with a small sword, insomuch that he absolutely felt it whiz around the blade and glance off at the hilt. In proof of which, he was ready at any time to show the sword, with the hilt a little bent. There were several more who had been equally great in the field, not one of whom 
but was persuaded that he had a considerable hand in bringing the war to a happy termination. But all these were nothing to the tales of ghosts and apparitions that succeeded. The neighborhood is rich in legendary treasures of the kind. Local tales and superstitions thrive best in these sheltered, long-settled retreats, but are trampled underfoot by the shifting throng that forms the population of most of our country places. Besides, there is no encouragement for ghosts in most of our villages, for they have scarce had time to finish their first nap and to turn themselves in their graves before their surviving friends have traveled away from the neighborhood, so that when they turn out of a night to walk the rounds, they have no acquaintance left to call upon. This is perhaps the reason why we hear so seldom of ghosts, except in our long-established Dutch communities. The immediate cause, however, of the prevalence of supernatural stories in these parts was doubtless owing to the vicinity of Sleepy Hollow. There was a contagion in the very air that blew from that haunted region. It breathed forth an atmosphere of dreams and fancies infecting all the land. Several of the Sleepy Hollow people were present at Van Tassel's, and as usual were doling out their wild and wonderful legends. Many dismal tales were told about funeral trains and mournful cries and wailings heard and seen about the great tree where the unfortunate Mayor André was taken, and which stood in the neighborhood. Some mention was made also of the woman in white that haunted the dark glen at Raven Rock and was often heard to shriek on winter nights before a storm, having perished there in the snow. The chief part of the stories, however, turned upon the favorite specter of Sleepy Hollow, the Headless Horseman, who had been heard several times of late, patrolling the country. And it was said, tethered his horse nightly, among the graves in the churchyard. The sequestered situation of this church seems always to have made it a favorite haunt of troubled spirits. It stands on a knoll surrounded by locust trees and lofty elms from among which its decent whitewashed walls shine modestly forth like Christian purity beaming through the shades of retirement. A gentle slope descends from it to a silver sheet of water bordered by high trees between which peeps may be caught at the blue hills of the Hudson. To look upon its grass-grown yard where the sunbeams seem to sleep so quietly, one would think that there, at least, the dead might rest in peace. On one side of the church extends a wide woody dell along which raves a large brook among broken rocks and trunks of fallen trees. Over a deep black part of the stream, not far from the church, was formerly thrown a wooden bridge. The road that led to it and the bridge itself were thickly shaded by overhanging trees, which cast a gloom about it even in the daytime, but occasioned a fearful darkness at night. Such was one of the favorite haunts of the headless horseman, and the place where he was most frequently encountered. The tale was told of old Brower a most heretical disbeliever in ghosts, how he met the horseman returning from his foray into Sleepy Hollow and was obliged to get up behind him, how they galloped over bush and brake, over hill and swamp, until they reached the bridge, when the horseman suddenly turned into a skeleton, threw old Brower into the brook, and sprang away 
over the treetops with a clap of thunder. This story was immediately matched by a thrice-marvelous adventure of Brom Bones, who made light of the galloping Hessian as an arrant jockey. He affirmed that on returning one night from the neighboring village of Sing Sing, he had been overtaken, yes, that is that Sing Sing, he had been overtaken by this midnight trooper that he had offered to race with him for a bowl of punch and should have won it too, for Daredevil beat the goblin horse all hollow. But just as they came to the church bridge, the Hessian bolted and vanished in a flash of fire. All these tales, told in that drowsy undertone with which men talk in the dark, I wonder what that sounds like, the drowsy undertone with which men talk in the dark, the countenances of the listeners only now and then receiving a casual gleam from the glare of a pipe, sunk deep in the mind of Ichabod. He repaid them in kind with large extracts from his invaluable author, Cotton Mather, and added many very marvelous events that had taken place in his, in his native state of Connecticut, and fearful sights which he had seen in his nightly walks about Sleepy Hollow. The revel now gradually broke up. The old farmers gathered together their families in their wagons and were heard for some time rattling along the hollow roads and over the distant hills. Some of the damsels mounted on pillions behind their favorite swains and their light-hearted laughter mingling with the clatter of hoofs echoed along the silent woodlands, sounding fainter and fainter until they gradually died away and the late scene of noise and frolic was all silent and deserted. Ichabod only lingered behind, according to the custom of country lovers, to have a tete-a-tete with the heiress, fully convinced that he was now on the high road to success. What passed at this interview I will not pretend to say, for in fact I do not know. Something, however, I fear something, however, I fear me must have gone wrong, for he certainly sallied forth, after no very great interval, with an air quite desolate and chopfallen. Oh, these women, these women, could that girl have been playing off any of her coquettish tricks? Was her encouragement of the poor pedagogue all a mere sham to secure her conquest of his rival? Heaven only knows, not I. Let it suffice to say, Kabad stole forth with the air of one who had been sacking a hen roost, <laughs> rather than a fair lady's heart. Without looking to the right or left to notice the scene of rural wealth on which he had so often gloated, he went straight to the stable, and with several hearty cuffs and kicks, roused his steed most uncourteously from the comfortable quarters in which he was soundly sleeping, dreaming of mountains of corn and oats and whole valleys of timothy and clover. It was the very witching time of night that Ichabod, heavy-hearted and crestfallen, pursued his travel homewards, along the sides of the lofty hills which rise above Tarrytown, and which he had traversed so cheerily in the afternoon. The hour was as dismal as himself. Far below him the Tappan Zee spread its dusky and indistinct waste of waters, with here and there the tall mast of a sloop, riding quietly at anchor under the land. In the dead hush of midnight, he could even hear the barking of the watchdog from the opposite shore of the Hudson, but it was so vague and faint as only to give an idea of his distance from this faithful companion of man. Now and then, too, the long-drawn crowing of a cock 
accidentally awakened would sound far, far off from some farmhouse away among the hills. But it was like a dreaming sound in his ear. No signs of life occurred near him, but occasionally the melancholy chirp of a cricket or perhaps the guttural twang of the bullfrog from a neighboring marsh, as if sleeping uncomfortably and turning suddenly in his bed. All the stories of ghosts and goblins that he had heard in the afternoon now came crowding upon his recollection. The night grew darker and darker. The stars seemed to sink deeper in the sky, and driving clouds occasionally hid them from his sight. He had never felt so lonely and dismal. He was, moreover, approaching the very place where many of the scenes of the ghost stories had been laid. In the center of the road stood an enormous tulip tree, which towered like a giant above all the other trees of the neighborhood and formed a kind of landmark. Its limbs were gnarled and fantastic, large enough to form trunks for ordinary trees, twisting down almost to the earth and rising again into the air. It was connected with the tragical story of the unfortunate Andre, who had been taken prisoner hard by and was universally known by the name of Major Andre's Tree. The common people regarded it with a mixture of respect and superstition, partly out of sympathy for the fate of, this Ill, of its ill-starred namesake, and partly from the tales of strange sights and doleful lamentations told concerning it. As Ichabod approached this fearful tree, he began to whistle. He thought his whistle was answered. It was but a blast sweeping sharply through the dry branches. As he approached a little nearer, he thought he saw something white hanging in the midst of the tree. He paused and ceased whistling but on looking more narrowly, perceived that it was a place where the tree had been scathed by lightning, and the white wood laid bare. Suddenly he heard a groan. His teeth chattered, and his knees smote against the saddle. It was but the rubbing of one huge bough upon another, as if as they were swayed about by the breeze. He passed the tree in safety, but new perils lay before him. About two hundred yards from the tree, a small brook crossed the road and ran into a marshy and thickly wooded glen, known by the name of Wiley's Swamp. A few rough logs laid side by side served for a bridge over the stream. On that side of the road where the brook entered the wood, a group of oaks and chestnuts, matted thick with wild grapevines, threw a cavernous gloom over it. To pass this bridge was the severest trial. It was at this identical spot that the unfortunate Andre was captured and under the covert of those chestnuts and vines were the sturdy yeomen concealed who surprised him. This has ever since been considered a haunted stream, and fearful are the feelings of the schoolboy who has to pass it alone after dark. As he approached the stream, his heart began to thump. He, however, summoned up all his resolution, gave his horse half a score of kicks in the ribs, and attempted to dash briskly across the bridge. But instead of starting forward, the perverse old animal made a lateral movement and ran broadside against the fence. Ichabod, whose fears increased with the delay, jerked the reins on the other side and kicked lustily with a contrary foot. It was all in vain. His steed started, it is true, but it was only to plunge to the opposite side of the road into a thicket of brambles and alder bushes, the schoolmaster now bestowed both whip and heel upon the starveling ribs of old gunpowder, who dashed forward, snuffling and snorting, but came to a stand just by the bridge with a suddenness that had nearly sent his rider sprawling over his head. Just at this moment, a plashy tramp by the side of the bridge 
caught the sensitive ear of Ichabod. In the dark shadow of the grove, on the margin of the brook, he beheld something huge, misshapen, black, and towering. It stirred not, but seemed gathered up in the gloom like some gigantic monster ready to spring upon the traveler. The hair of this affrighted pedagogue rose upon his head with terror. What was to be done? To turn and fly was now too late, and besides, what chance was there of escaping ghost or goblin, if such it was, which could ride upon the wings of the wind? Summoning up, therefore, a show of courage, he demanded in stammering accents, Who are you? He received no reply. He repeated his demand in a still more agitated voice. Still, there was no answer. Once more, he cudgeled the sides of the inflexible gunpowder, and shutting his eyes, broke forth with involuntary fervor into a psalm tune. Just then, the shadowy object of alarm put itself in motion, and with a scramble and a bound, stood at once in the middle of the road. Though the night was dark and dismal, yet the form of the unknown might of the form of the though the night was dark and dismal, yet the form of the unknown might now, in some degree, be ascertained. He appeared to be a horseman of large dimensions and mounted on a black horse of powerful frame. He made no offer of molestation or sociability, but kept aloof on one side of the road, jogging along the blind side of old Gunpowder, who had just who had now got over his fright and waywardness. Ichabod, who had no relish for this strange midnight companion, and bethought himself of the adventure of Brom Bones with the galloping Hessian, now quickened his steed, in hopes of leaving him behind. The stranger, however, quickened his horse to an equal pace. Ichabod pulled up and fell into a walk, thinking to lag behind. The other did the same. His heart began to sink within him. He endeavored to resume his psalm tune, but his parched tongue clove to the roof of his mouth, and he could not utter a stave. There was something in the moody and dogged silence of this pertinacious companion that was mysterious and appalling. It was soon fearfully accounted for. On mounting a rising ground which brought the figure of his fellow traveler in relief against the sky, gigantic in height and muffled in a cloak, Ichabod was horror-struck on perceiving that he was headless. But his horror was still more increased on observing that the head, which should have rested on his shoulders, was carried before him on the pommel of the saddle. His terror rose to desperation. He rained a shower of kicks and blows upon gunpowder, hoping by a sudden movement to give his companion the slip, but the specter started full jump within him. Away then they dashed through thick and thin, stones flying and sparks flashing at every bound. Ichabod's flimsy garments fluttered in the air as he stretched his long, lank body away over his horse's head in the eagerness of his flight. They had now reached the road which turns off to Sleepy Hollow, but Gunpowder, who seemed possessed with a demon, instead of keeping up it, made an opposite turn and plunged headlong downhill to the left. This road leads through a sandy hollow, shaded by trees for about a quarter of a mile, where it crosses the bridge famous in Goblin Story, and just beyond swells the green knoll on which stands the whitewashed church. As yet the panic of the steed had given his unskillful rider an apparent advantage in the chance, but just as he had got halfway through the hollow, the girths of the saddle gave way, and he felt it slipping from under him. He seized it by the pommel and endeavored to hold it firm, but in vain, and had just time to save himself by clasping old gunpowder round the neck, when the saddle fell to the earth and he heard it trampled underfoot by his pursuer. For a moment, the terror of Hans von Ripper's wrath passed across his mind, for it was his Sunday saddle, but this was no time for petty fears. 
The goblin was hard on his haunches, and, unskillful rider that he was, he had much ado to maintain his seat, sometimes slipping on one side, sometimes on another, and sometimes jolted on the high ridge of his horse's backbone with a violence that he verily feared would cleave him asunder. An opening in the trees now cheered him with the hopes that the church bridge was at hand. The wavering reflection of a silver star in the bosom of the brook told him that he was not mistaken. He saw the walls of the church dimly glaring under the trees beyond. He recollected the place where Brom Bones's ghostly competitor had disappeared. If I can but reach that bridge, thought Ichabod, I am safe. Just then he heard the black steed panting and blowing close behind him. He even fancied that he felt his hot breath. Another convulsive kick in the ribs and old gunpowder sprung upon the bridge. He thundered over the resounding planks. He gained the opposite side. And now Ichabod cast a look behind to see if his pursuer should vanish, according to rule, in a flash of fire and brimstone. Just then he saw the goblin rising in his stirrups and in the very act of hurling his head at him. Ichabod endeavored to dodge the horrible missile, but too late. It encountered his cranium with a tremendous crash. He was tumbled headlong into the dust, and gunpowder, the black steed, and the goblin rider passed by like a whirlwind. The next morning the old horse was found without his saddle and with the bridle under his feet, soberly cropping the grass at his master's gate. Ichabod did not make his appearance at breakfast. Dinner hour came, but no Ichabod. The boys assembled at the schoolhouse and strolled idly about the banks of the brook, but no schoolmaster. Hans von Ripper now began to feel some uneasiness about the fate of poor Ichabod and his saddle. An inquiry was set on foot, and after diligent investigation, they came upon his traces. In one part of the road leading to the church was found the saddle trampled in the dirt. The tracks of horses' hooves, deeply dented in the road, and evidently at furious speed, were traced to the bridge, beyond which, on the bank of a broad part of the brook, where the water ran deep and black, was found the hat of the unfortunate Ichabod, and close beside it, a shattered pumpkin. The brook was searched, but the body of the schoolmaster was not to be discovered. Hans von Ripper, as executor of his estate, examined the bundle which contained all his worldly effects. They consisted of two shirts and a half, two stocks for the neck, a pair or two of worsted stockings, an old pair of corduroy small clothes, a rusty razor, a book of psalm tunes full of dog's ears, and a broken pitch pipe. As to the books and furniture of the schoolhouse, they belonged to the community, excepting Cotton Mather's History of Witchcraft, a New England almanac, and a book of dreams and fortune-telling, in which last was a sheet of foolscap, much scribbled and blotted in several fruitless attempts to make a copy of verses in honor of the heiress of Van Tassel. These magic books and the poetic scrawl were forthwith consigned to the flames by Hans von Ripper. That's very interesting. Who from that time forward determined to send his children no more to school, observing that he never knew any good come of the, any good come of the same reading and writing. Whatever money the schoolmaster possessed, and he had received his quarter's pay but a day or two before, must have been about his person at the time of his disappearance. The mysterious event caused much speculation at the church on the following Sunday. Knots of gazers and gossips were collected in the churchyard at the bridge and at the spot where the hat and pumpkin had been found. 
the stories of Brower of Bones and a whole budget of others, that's great, a whole budget of others, were called to mind. And when they had diligently considered them all and compared them with the symptoms of the present case, they shook their heads and came to the conclusion that Ichabod had been carried off by the galloping Hessian. As he was a bachelor and in nobody's debt, nobody troubled his head any more about him. The school was removed to a different quarter of the hollow, and another pedagogue reigned in his stead. It is true an old farmer who had been down to New York on a visit several years after, and from whom this account of the ghostly adventure was received, brought home the intelligence that Ichabod Crane was still alive, that he had left the neighborhood partly through fear of the goblin and Hans von Ripper, and partly in mortification at having been suddenly dismissed by the heiress, that he had changed his quarters to a distant part of the country, had kept school and studied law at the same time, had been admitted to the bar, turned politician, electioneered, written for the newspapers, and finally had been made a justice of the ten-pound court. Brom Bones, too, who shortly after his rival's disappearance conducted the blooming Katrina, in triumph to the altar, was observed to look exceedingly knowing whenever the story of Ichabod was related, and always burst into a hearty laugh at the mention of the pumpkin, which led some to suspect that he knew more about the matter than he chose to tell. The old country wives, however, who are the best judges of these matters, maintain to this day that Ichabod was spirited away by supernatural means, and it is a favorite story often told about the neighborhood round the winter evening fire. The bridge became more than ever an object of superstitious awe, and that may be the reason why the road has been altered of late years, so as to reproach the church by the border of the mill pond. The schoolhouse being deserted soon fell to decay, and was reported to be haunted by the ghost of the unfortunate pedagogue, and the plowboy, loitering homeward of a still summer evening, has often fancied his voice at a distance, chanting a melancholy psalm among the tranquil solitudes of Sleepy Hollow. Now, there's a postscript, which Irving tells us was found in the handwriting of Mr. Knickerbocker. The preceding tale is given almost in the precise words in which I heard it related at a corporation meeting of the ancient city of Manhattos, at which were present many of its sagest and most illustrious burghers. The narrator was a pleasant, shabby, gentlemanly old fellow in pepper and salt clothes with a sadly humorous face, and one whom I strongly suspected of being poor. He made such efforts to be entertaining. That's interesting. When his story was concluded, there was much laughter and approbation, particularly from two or three deputy aldermen, who had been asleep the greater part of the time. There was, however, one tall, dry-looking old gentleman with beetling eyebrows who maintained a grave and rather severe face throughout, now and then folding his arms, inclining his head, and looking down upon the floor, as if turning a doubt over in his mind. He was one of your weary men, who never laugh but upon good grounds, when they have reason and the law on their side. When the mirth of the rest of the company had subsided and silence was restored, he leaned one arm on the elbow of his chair and sticking the other akimbo, demanded with a slight but exceedingly staged motion of the head and contraction of the brow, what was the moral of the story and what it went to prove. The storyteller, who was just putting a glass of wine to his lips as a refreshment after his toils, paused for a moment, looked at his inquirer with an air of infinite deference and lowering the glass slowly to the table observed that the story was intended most logically to prove that there is no situation in life but has its advantages and pleasures provided we will take but a joke as we find it that therefore he that runs races with goblin troopers is likely to have rough riding of it ergo 
For a country schoolmaster to be refused the hand of a Dutch heiress is a certain step to high preferment in the state. The cautious old gentleman knit his brows tenfold closer after this explanation, being sorely puzzled by the ratiocination of the syllogism, while methought the one in pepper and salt eyed him with something of a triumphant leer. At length he observed that all this was very well, but still he thought the story a little on the extravagant. There were one or two points on which he had his doubts. Faith, sir, replied the storyteller. As to that matter, I don't believe one half of it myself. And that is the entire tale of the legend of Sleepy Hollow in the original as written by Washington Irving. This has been an episode of Finally. Thank you for listening.